Hi, my name is Andrea Jansen, and I am on a mission to help people be ambitious at work every single day. That means you're fulfilled, you're productive, and you're contributing to your company. I'm a certified executive coach that has an MBA, a diversity consultant, a Forbes contributor, a business leader, a wife, and a mother of three. This podcast is about tackling hard topics like the gender gap in the workplace. It's about asking the questions that everybody's thinking about, but doesn't want to say out loud. Each episode is like the sweet spot between motivation and tactical strategies to get you ahead. We get out of our comfort zones and we take action. This is where we learn, grow, and create opportunities. Welcome to the Ambition Theory Podcast. Hello, I'm so excited about today's interview with Tinie Manimo, who is the founder of Shumba Consulting and a diversity and inclusion expert. We talked about how hard it is to actually implement diversity and inclusion initiatives. We also talked about why companies don't actually implement and they talk about diversity all the time but don't actually take action. And my favorite part of this interview was when Tinier actually gave me an epiphany moment when he explained the limitations of internal diversity and inclusion roles. Sit back and relax and I'm so excited to share this interview with you today. So on this episode of the podcast, I am having a conversation with Tanaye Manimo. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, Tanaye is the founder of Shumba Consulting, and he is an expert on diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And I know you go by TK. Is it okay if I call you TK? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Okay, awesome. So can you tell everybody listening what you do and what Shumba Consulting is all about? Okay, uh, thank you very much, Andrea. As you, as you mentioned there, uh, my name is uh, Tanaya Komborero Manimo. Um, my pronouns are he and him. Um, and I am a diversity and inclusion consultant. Um, I mainly work with organizations to deliver impactful workplace education um, around not just understanding diversity and inclusion, but also trying to put it in practice. Um, it's a very, very broad conversation. So um, in a nutshell, that's 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 what that's what I do and helping organizations along their journey. Some of them are starting it, uh, some of them are revising their various journeys, um, and and with others are looking for different ways to implement, you know, how they've traveled along their journey. So that's what I like to help organizations. So one thing I love that you said, implement and put into practice, because <laughs> I find there's a lot of people talking about diversity and inclusion but not as many people taking action. And the fact that those two words came out of your mouth in kind of the first minute, um, you are speaking my language. So I'm excited about That's great. Yeah. this conversation. So I'm curious, what motivated you to get into this? Can you take me back and share that? Uh, um, you know, if I was to be, you know, incredibly blunt, I mean, obviously I, I first and foremost say, um, as a racialized person, I was born in, in into an aspect of diversity um, but in my adult life and in my career um, I've been privileged enough to uh, to have different occupations where I've been able to see you know firsthand some of the gaps uh, that have been there in in society in general and it wasn't until later that I kind of amassed it to diversity and inclusion because there were so many various aspects whether it was racial inequality accessibility you know the gender gap there were so many things and you know couldn't really put uh, a label to it so um, then I 
decided to to, to venture out uh, on on my own and try to make a focus of this, especially from the educational standpoint. So I'm really curious, TK. What are the gaps that you noticed? Can you tell me how you realized? Uh, yeah, no, and there was there was a, a few different instances that I would have realized that there would have been gaps. Um, primarily, uh, an example is in post-secondary education, where you have students with different uh, uh, different ways of learning. Um, as people, we have to understand that we do learn differently. Some people are visual learners, some people are hands-on learners, um, and some people need um, additional assistance when it comes to their learning. Um, you know, and, and that in itself was a gap because, you know, sometimes you had people who were essentially instructing or teaching these students not aware of some of the challenges that these students had. So ultimately it impacts their success, right? And their ability to perform in the classroom. And that was, that was a gap, you know, then there's the accessibility gap there as well. You know, for some of our institutions uh, in regards to knowing that uh, beyond the visible accessibility element, there's also invisible elements, right? That students may have different challenges and may need uh, different accommodations in regards to whether it's a psychoeducational assessment or otherwise, right? Um, but those supports are great, but it also had an impact of impeding some students when it came to going on to their careers, right? Because for most post-secondary institutions, if you're coming out of high school with adaptations and accommodations on your transcripts, IPP um, is, is one of the, what they call it, that can inhibit you in terms of going forward to university education or otherwise, depending on the supports that are needed. Um, you know, so you know that was you know that was one example, and um, and I will say another example for me was um, from an immigrational standpoint as well. Um, you know, not understanding. Uh, or, or lack of awareness, I should say, about, you know, the value that, you know, immigration brings or immigrants would bring, you know, to, to Canada and as well, you know, whether participating in educational system or participating in employment in general. Um, those gaps were twofold. You know, they were both on the end of the new immigrants coming in and not really knowing how, where to go and where to navigate. Um, and on the flip side of, you know, uh, people who are here in Canada not knowing how to assist those people. Um, and then you have people who are lost. So, but I mean, many things have changed obviously since then and people are trying to connect these dots and which is what we're all trying to strive for uh, to connect these dots and make things accessible for people. Okay, so I know you are an immigrant. You moved to Canada from Zimbabwe yes. eight years ago, right? Uh, well, in 2003, 2003 so okay so what is that 18 i can't do math 17 uh, uh, years 18, ago okay 17 years ago yes 17 years ago okay um can you tell me what your experience was like because you're talking about this from a like like a generalized perspective but i would love to hear it from your your eyes and your experience well absolutely and i'll and i'll take you all the way i'll take you all the way back i mean um um, first and foremost, I guess I am originally from Zimbabwe. Um, one thing I should have done before I came to Canada was look up the weather. I had no idea how cold it was going to be. Um, I had no idea at all how cold it was going to be. So, um, you know, I arrived in, you know, September of, of 2003. And uh, my initial experience was not a great one. Um, it wasn't an initial great experience, you know, uh, trying to navigate, you know, through airports and so forth. And 
trying to figure out, you know, who was picking me up and when they were picking me up. But eventually, it was, uh, it was, it, it was solved. Um, I'm also fortunate enough that um, I did not have a significant, uh, I didn't have a language barrier in terms of, you know, I could definitely communicate well enough uh, uh, with people. But I understand even within the circle of international students that were there, uh, there were lots of barriers that were there. Um, you know, that uh, uh, that in itself was, was challenging, but there was also a lot of support and a lot of people who, who wanted to help, right? And, and, and similar like our conversation, a lot of it is around navigating how you do that. Um, so, you know, but that being said, I have been so privileged and blessed through my, uh, uh, through my educational and professional career. Uh, Cape Breton University is where I went to. Um, uh, amazing university. I spent, you know, a lot of lovely years there. So just so I want to explain what Cape Breton is to people because we have listeners all over Canada and the U.S. and most people have never heard of Cape Breton. So I would love it, TK, if you could describe Cape Breton University to me and Ooh. everyone listening. Uh, Cape Breton University is, you know, a second home to me. It is a lovely island, you know, in Nova Scotia. Um, uh, it's the home of CBU, uh, which used to be called University College of Cape Breton uh, back in the day, but now Cape Breton University. Um, it is a very multicultural university, and I think it's one of the universities that actually has more international students than it has local students um, as well in its population. So really, you know, really rich and diverse and, 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 and culture in that regard. Um, Cape Breton Island itself is amazing. It's the home of the Cabot Trail. Um, if you've never heard of the Cabot Trail, you should definitely look it up. Um, an amazing, beautiful place. Uh, uh, lovely, uh, lovely people there and uh, definitely a place worth visiting. Worth visiting. Okay, so I find it interesting because it is very rural. It is me. I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto and I live in Halifax right now and it is the most rural place I have been in my entire life. So it is very rural. And I love how you said there's more international students than local, because I think that university is there to really stimulate the economy. And like, you need to bring people in because there's just, there's not a big population in Cape Breton. So I wanted people to just imagine this place that you showed up at yeah, no, um, 18 years ago. Um, Cause I think it's not typical of most international students. There's a lot of international students would go to bigger schools. Yes, and, and, the, and the reason I, I went to Cape Breton University, at the time it was a really small university, and my goal was um, I, I did not want to just be a student number. Um, I know that I wanted to absorb myself into the community, into the culture, um, and, and obviously I was naturally nervous, so I, I did choose a, a, a smaller place, and, you know, and I'm really thankful that I, that I did that because I was able to, even amongst the challenges, be able to get the one-on-one -on -one that I wanted. Okay, so you had this, it sounds like you had a fabulous experience um, it was, it going was, to school. It was, it was interesting, yeah, yeah, no, it, it was, was it, like I said, it's not, uh, like any experience is not without its, its, its challenges. I mean, like I said, I was an international student, um, you know, uh, international students, you know, obviously, you know, pay twice the tuition that local students pay. They can be very, it can be very challenging. When I started university, um, I was not able, I was not allowed to work off campus, right? So think about it. This is just in 2003. Um, 
you know, I was not allowed to work off campus. We're not permitted to get a part-time job as a, as a student who was studying, right? You were only allowed to work on campus. So, you know, in, in a place where there's only a number of jobs on campus, you can imagine, you know, you know, demand is high and there's not a lot going around. So, and things have changed significantly, you know, since then now international students are able to contribute to the economy and work part-time on weekends and so forth, which as you mentioned there, uh, uh, with Cape Breton and, 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 and the economy definitely has a positive effect. Okay, cool. So was there any barriers? Like it sounded like it was like, you're like the poster child for international <laughs> students coming to Canada. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced as you kind of went to school and you transitioned into getting a job? Um, whew, you know, you know, if I could write them all down, that would be something else. But um, there were many barriers, uh, both from um, a social standpoint um, and as well from, you know, uh, an educational standpoint, uh, you know, where I'm from, you know, to put it into context, you know, the majority of people there are black um, and you know when I came you know to Canada here you know things were a little different so naturally there was a little bit of being getting you know I was getting comfortable with being a little uncomfortable um, you know which you know which was good and, and healthy for me as well um, but the thing for me is I hadn't really experienced racism um, in its, you know, in, in its overt form here. It's, and I think it's, you know, and everywhere you go around the world, it's different, right? And, and, you know, this is one of the things too that I made a mental note of, you know, even when we're talking about race, you know, the moment I say race, you know, everyone automatically assumes black and white, but, you know, it's, it's, it's more, it's also more than that, um, you know, so some of my initial experiences to, to, to racism, I did not initially label as racism. Um, I, 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 I guess to be correct, I would have thought it perhaps to be more of a, a classism thing. It's something I would experience from people who would have just had more than me, not because that they were any different than me or anything like that, but just simply because they had more than me. Um, I was not uh, accustomed to it from a, uh, uh, from a, from a racial standpoint, if that, uh, if that makes any sense at all. Um, you know, aside from those barriers, you know, he had financial barriers too, which I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people have, you know, everyone has those, um, you know, so those are just some of the barriers that would have been there and overcoming them would have been the challenge because sometimes when you're trying to overcome barriers, you just find more obstacles, right? There's more mm -hmm. obstacles as you're trying to, you know, and it can be very mentally and physically exhausting. Right. You know, when you're trying to overcome, 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 overcome. Um, but, you know, you, you know, sometimes you do have to, you know, remain focused and, you know, become knowledgeable on what you want to do and, you know, do active things to, you know, to, to remove those barriers, even one piece at a time. So you seem very motivated, like you, like you came, you got to work, you figured it out, you overcome all the, you overcame all these challenges and now you a business owner and you work, you're really like your job is to make workplaces more inclusive. So what are some things that you learned as you've kind of transitioned into the workforce and doing this work that shock you? Uh, you mean learning opportunities? Uh, yeah, that's what learning I, that's... opportunities. Yeah, what are like the bigger, like you've already, you, you talked about overcoming these challenges before and then yes. they lead to bigger challenges. So tell me some yes. of the bigger challenges that you're facing. Um, and you're knowing, like even seeing, not just for you, but for the world. 
uh, a lot of the bigger challenges that I, I for me are in, in general is 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 the awareness piece. Um, uh, is the awareness piece when it comes to um, understanding that the conversation is not necessarily just about you know you or me, but it's about all of, all of us. Um, you know that is a a, a a really big challenge because there's also a big uh, uh, res resistance. You know, not from the awareness piece, but from the practice piece. Um, you know, you find a lot of people, you know, we call it the checkbox approach where people want to do some sort of uh, a workshop or, or, or training, um, but then it stops there, right? You know, that in itself is a big challenge because the, the, the risk that we all face and much, one of my main concerns is that, okay, after an organization does, you know, a day or two day workshop that, you know, where is the follow up? when it comes to the practice of those things that they have just learned right and that's where i think a lot of organizations you know uh, uh fall down and you know and and that's a big challenge because then every year it's like you're doing a reset mm -hmm. it's like you're, it's like you're resetting every year it's like okay all right well let's let's get back to it again right and see how we can do a different start the conversation again um you know I, that in itself is uh, is a big challenge um navigating resources is a big challenge uh, for a lot of people who just want to just maybe even get some basic knowledge for themselves. Um, in the world of social media that we live in there now, um, there are so many, there's access to so many different resources, opinions and posts and things like that. It's hard to navigate in terms of like, okay, if I'm someone who wants to learn more and I want to speak up more, you know, is the knowledge that I'm acquiring to speak up, you know, is it factual? Um, you know, so, um, and, and I usually, you know, to, to address some of those challenges, I, I, I say to people, you know, you should, you should start with, you know, the things you know to be true. Start with our legislative framework, right? Use resources stemming from the Canadian Human Rights uh, 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 Commission. You know, that's, you know, that's a, that's a really, really good resource, right? Um, that's a good place to start, uh, you know, your knowledge in terms of a pivotal point of like, where can, what will point me towards resources that I need to learn more. That way, at least, you know, you're grounded and, you know, executives are always struggling like, okay, so let's come up with, you know, uh, a, a definition of how we will, how will we say, how will we define harassment in our workplace, right? How will we define discrimination in our workplace? And I'm like, that has been done for you. Okay, that that is there. That's not something for you to to reinvent, you know. And you want to make sure that you know everything you're doing is you know uh, is from a legal standpoint too, right? And has that legislative backing. So just use what's been prepared by you know human rights and 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 the laws that govern us. Okay, you said a lot of things there, and I'm gonna I want to ask you some more questions. Sure. The first thing you said was the checkbox approach. Yeah. Um, and I'm familiar with that already. Um, and it's this idea that we've done unconscious bias training, check the box, we can move forward to the next thing that we need to do from a business perspective, like accounting or sales or whatever, really. I'm really curious because earlier on you said you're all about implementation and taking action and doing it. So is there an alternative to the checkbox instead of, instead of checkbox, we've done it. Is there a checkbox for implementation? So you're just you're measuring something differently uh yeah i mean i would say there is a, a checkbox for implementation and and that does 
you know, depend on every organization in terms of the next steps that they want to take. Um, but where I come in with that implementation is from the accountability standpoint. Um, what I also realize is that, you know, organizations may have limited resources at times to dedicate, you know, to wanting to implement because some of these things, you know, the, the bus is moving, you know, the bus is moving and, you know, they want to keep moving and say, okay, yes, we want to really do these things, but how do we start to implement them beyond just having the annual training? And that's where I like to introduce myself from an accountability standpoint. It's like, okay, you know, instead of just leaving it after one day, you start a series of follow-ups to see how the work is going. I mean, engagement is such a really big piece uh, when it comes to diversity and inclusion and even understanding unconscious bias, right? Um, and and, and that in itself gives you to a point where if you can implement alongside in a, in a collaborative approach with the organization, right? Implement some of their strategies and initiatives, right? And hold them accountable uh, to some of those actions. And that's one thing that I like to, try to sell about myself it's like well you know I'm the person who will hold you accountable because aside from you know if you had a diversity and inclusion designated person in 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 your office and you have particular strategies to implement what happens when the barrier is the manager or the leader or the leadership group you know how does that person push forward you know through those barriers right and that's kind of what I like to try to take on like let me hold you accountable because I'm only going to be accountable to A, B, and C. So right? I'm really Without curious. So I just want to interrupt for a sec, because I think that's really powerful what you just said in that, because a lot of companies have said, we've done the training, check the box. We yeah. have the diversity inclusion manager or vice president, check the box. That's right. We're good to go. But what you just said is that that diversity inclusion manager, if someone with a lot of power in the organization is the barrier they are powerless to implement pretty much yes they are ex exactly that they are so that's the value of a third party external person because you can navigate that right you can call that out you have someone that you're accountable to in the organization to recognize that we need to figure this out. And I, I just, I think that's really powerful. And I've never ha heard anybody talk about it that way in that, that the limitation of the internal diversity and inclusion Absolutely. role. And I, and I believe that very, very strongly because, you know, at, at times even, you know, we talk about it in the context, like, okay, you know, you have a person who's doing a particular role. Do they have the resources they need to do this work? Right. Yes. You know, you have the budget and other things as well, but then, when it even comes to the practicality of some things, right? You know, if they still have to navigate, like how many approvals do they have to navigate before they can actually get, you know, uh, some things moving. And the power dynamic is, is, is huge in the workplace, right? And, you know, that's a very big barrier. And that's why some of the conversations, you know, leadership has to be a part of, right? That accountability has to be them. And, and you know, and, and that enables me to become a good ally, you know, because I can call out, you know, without fear of repercussion, you know, uh, because it's sometimes it's, you know, it's the unknown, right? You know, when you go to your manager and say like, hey, you know, Andrew, I wanted to bring this to your attention. Like we're really trying to implement this policy and, you know, I really need you to, you know, to support this and, you know, you're, you know, you perhaps being a barrier, you know, your manager can say one of two things, can say to you like, oh, thank you for bringing this to my attention. Or they can say, thank you for bringing this to my attention. 
right? Um, and you not know exactly what that means, right? So, and then internal fears start, right? We talk about microaggressions in the workplace and what they look like. You know, these are some of the things that end up leading them in practice. Okay, TK, this is really, really powerful. So what I'm hearing from you, and so my mind is blown. So thank you for explaining this to me. <laughs> I think that it's actually really empowering. Just I think recognizing the, just the limitations of the system that we currently have in companies. Um, so I want to go back to a couple of questions based on the first thing we said. So we talked about sure. the checkbox. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about all talk and no action. Cause you said something really, really that resonated well with me. It's like, we do the workshop every year, but it's like, we're having the same conversation over and over and over a bit over again, because there's no accountability to take action. Cause the accountability is we've done it. We've done the training and we do it every year. That's right. And so it's like the definition of insanity, right? It's like, and we wonder why the numbers are not changing. Yeah, and the numbers aren't changing. And because simply that, and because there's no continuation as like you would have it in, um, in, in, in school in terms of not just retention of that knowledge, but putting that knowledge into practice, um, you know, it becomes an administrative exercise, um, an administrative exercise which can have uh, huge impacts on, on employees, you know, down the road, because employees can also develop a negative attitude. When you have an employee who's been doing the same workshop every year for, you know, five years, it's like, okay, we do this workshop every year, but then we never do anything. We never do anything after this workshop, you know, we, or, or this particular learning session, right? So those are other frustrations that end up being in there. And, and I think it also affects the attitude people take towards uh, the importance of some of these things. Okay. And I think you talk, the, this attitude of we do the same workshop and we don't actually implement it. I think that's in place for all training. It's not just diversity inclusion training. Yes, it's yeah. all training. It's like, oh, we, we've all done training. the the leadership training workshop, and when are we when when do we actually implement it and apply this stuff? So it's kind of it's like the same pitfall that companies fall into with training. It's, and I think it's limited to like the knowledge transfer, right? And I think, yeah. like diversity inclusion is culture, right? And it's not knowledge. Like you can't knowledge transfer and shift by and shifting culture. No, no, and it's and it's in practice, right? It's in it's in practice. It's you know it's when with check-ins, you know, when when you ask people to reflect on certain practices and things that are happening in their workplace, how long are they? How often are they having that conversation? You know, I say to people like, okay, I like to start courageous conversations. That's what I do. I like to start courageous conversations, but I don't want it to end when I leave. Right. I want the conversation to continue and I want to be able to be there to help it continue. Right. You know, because digging deeper and, and, and that's where people start to, I guess, you know, uh, uh, be defensive a little bit, because as we get a little uncomfortable. Right. People start to, to back down. But that's sometimes where we need to lean into more um, and get into the, you know, uh, and then you start to match you know, the organization's goals and their objectives and their missions and values, you know, and aligning it with diversity and inclusion efforts. Okay. So I'm curious. So I am all about, so I have a philosophy in my business that you have to get out of your comfort zone because that is where the magic happens. So I love yeah. that you said that and you have to get uncomfortable. And as soon as you get uncomfortable, you said people get defensive, people get scared. 
And the human default is to retreat, right? Is to avoid the conversation, right? It's That's like, right. you're there, like you're there and you're pushing the people to, to have that conversation. But then as soon as you're gone, the people just retreat to doing what they're used to doing before. And that's avoiding being defensive, all of those things. So how do you overcome that? Um, I think it's important to manage objections uh, 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 from an empathetical standpoint, I guess, you know, really wanting to just connect with people like we, uh, and I think sometimes that that gets in the way, especially when people do start to get uh, uncomfortable. Uh, we don't, you know, when we say you don't know what you don't know, you know, that's one thing, right? You know, but then when you learn something and you continue to do other practices that, you know, uh, uh, that are not reflective of what you learned, you know, then that's ignorance, right? You know, but what you want to do is get people comfortable enough to be like, okay, this is, it was not, it cannot all necessarily all be done in one day. Right. It's not something where, you know, you go into a workshop and then after that day, I'm like, OK, I have it all. Um, that's where just the, you know, the reflection starts. It starts there. And then it's how do we want to proceed from there? Because each and each and every single one of our actions affects someone else in the organization. Right. So it's important to look at it, not just from an individual perspective, but also from a, a group perspective as well. Okay, I love that. And so my other question is, and this is something that I've seen, my, most of my work is with women, is focused on getting women into leadership. But I think the practice is probably the same when we're just looking at diversity from a bigger picture. But what I see a lot of companies do is they have a diversity committee that consists of middle managers. So usually the ones that I'm working with are female, are they're focused, they're a women's employee resource group. And it's made of women at mid-level management because the numbers today, there's less women in senior positions. There just are like the numbers are there. Um, and it's recorded. We record like male and female. There's lots of data on that. And they are charged with figuring out the diversity strategy because the thinking is we need them, the people, the minorities to tell us what to do to fix it. Can That's you a big problem. talk about, That's I want to have a conversation about that because I believe culture starts at the top and whoever's at the top needs to be leading it and doing it and shifting the culture. But what, what's your take on all of this? Whew, yeah, that's a, that's a, you know, definitely a big one, but I mean, I, I do agree with you. And sometimes there is the notion um, it's almost along the lines of the token hire, um, you know, where if an organization has one person of color or in a particular role, you know, they are the person who will fix everything that is diversity and inclusion related, right? Mm -hmm. They are the go-to to say, okay, well, we have a problem with a particular group. Let's let that group get together and you know figure out how to move forward um and you know and and really what it starts talking to is about the awareness of what allyship really is right and you know and who needs to be you know who needs to be at the table when conversations are, are, are happening in terms of and making actionable things uh, happen um that's a very big problem um uh, people need to understand that you know as you know there's a lot of people I'm a, I'm someone who likes to be part of a conversation. Um, but if I was looking at it from an organizational context, I wouldn't look to a particular group, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, to be solely charged uh, with figuring out everything that is required for that group, because you have to think of the context. And, and I'll give you an example here. So, you know, you, there's, there's a position being hired for uh, an equity position being hired, right? Uh, that's been designated for a person of color. Um, you, you know, that person gets hired, they go into the organization, and at times you may have situations whereby people believe, other workers who are there believe that the person got their job because it was an equity hire, they needed to do it, you know, not necessarily because of their qualifications. So right off the bat, before the person has even had a chance to show what they're capable of, they've already been they've already been judged. Um, and my point of bringing that up is there's also a responsibility of organizations. You have to do just as much work inside educating your current employees on what you're doing in terms of hiring efforts and your approaches as you do on the outside. It's not enough to, you know, just to put that on a job posting and say, this is an, uh, uh, this is a designated position. Your employees on the inside need to understand that you may have someone who has been waiting for a managerial position for a number of years, hoping that something would come up. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's been designated for another group. You, it's really, really important, you know, that, you know, organizations start engaging with their employees on that level so that everyone's on the same page. Like when you have buy-in and everyone is, you know, on the same page and understanding what the organization is going to, you have, uh, uh, you know, a lot less defensiveness. And I think that's a big problem in organizations right now as well. So I love that you brought that up because it's kind of the difference between diversity and inclusion. Diversity is we're going to designate an equity hire. Inclusion is you're going to make them and invite them to be a part of the team and get excited that they're working there. That's right. And, and but it needs to be just kind of there. It, doesn't, like, it just kind of needs to happen. Yeah, no. And, and, and it's, it, it, and, and I think from an, uh, you know, from a daily standpoint, you know, when someone starts uh, a, an occupation, you can feel it, you know, uh, there's a lot of nonverbal things that we feel and a lot of tension that we end up feeling in, in the workplace that can, can be as a result, right? And a lot of those things are harder to repair down the road, um, you know, so it does start with, uh, with a lot of education and awareness, you know, on, on both sides. Um, it's not, top down is not enough anymore when, the top level of management come up with a diversity and inclusion strategy. And there's a difference. There's a difference between communicating and engaging with people and consulting them and presenting information to them, right? So when you talk to your employees and say like, yeah, you know, we're really passionate about diversity and inclusion and this is what we've come up with, you know, you're basically saying, this is what we're going to do. You know, we're not necessarily looking for your thoughts and input on it or how it might impact you you know, we've come up with this from, you know, from the top, instead of taking an engagement approach, which is, yes, we have an idea around diversity and inclusion. What does this mean to you? How do you, how do you engage your employees to make them part of that thing? Because there's a, when there's ownership with a strategy and initiative, you get a lot more return on investment. Like you get a lot more. Okay. I have a couple questions about this because it's, I feel like the implementation is, is going to be hard because you talk about the top down, you have to do this. Here's the rules. People don't buy into that. Right. But then you get the other companies that are like kind of the other way. It's like, well, we want it to be engaging. So middle managers, people with diverse backgrounds who are not at the top, who don't have the position power, we want to be, we want you to be engaged. We want you to take it on and neither works. So we need yeah. like both. So how do you implement that? Um, 
Yeah, the implementation is it can definitely is is definitely a struggle. Um, but I think you just you know said it right there. Everyone needs to be involved. You know, when you're looking at the implementation of um, of, of of any strategy, you know, I think everyone needs to be involved from the janitor, you know, all the way up to you know the CEO of an organization. And there needs to be a commitment, right? And I think that's where some of the accountability piece comes in as well. Right. The need to make sure that, OK, if we're going to do this, what structures are we going to have for for accountability so that it's not just given to the middle managers to figure out and, you know, the senior leadership only checks in every now and then. OK, so accountability. So I think this is what it is. Accountability is at the top. Mm -hmm. The accountability is always at the top. It can't accountability can't be in the middle. Right. Nope. And the execution is all levels. Execution is and the all engagement levels. is all levels. Okay. Yep. Is it that and simple? It it, you know, it, and it, it's, yeah, it's, well, it's easier, obviously easier said than done uh, because, you know, for example, if you have an organization, you know, that is, you know, has multiple offices and, you know, have different logistical frameworks, right? Um, and what makes it even more difficult is there's an existing culture. If there's an existing culture where either everything has been top down or everything has already always been the middle level management because nine times out of ten there's also policies that drive that you know making pushing things toward mid-level managers or or otherwise right so it, it can be a culture that's ingrained so it, you know the the agreement and the commitment is to you know start to work around eliminating some of those barriers right because it is sometimes it only takes one excuse it takes one excuse to be like oh well no our policy doesn't you know uh, doesn't allow for that piece so Therefore, you know, we can't do anything. It's like, okay, well, when should we look at changing policy? You know, how does this, how does this process work? And like I said, it's not something overnight, but it does take commitment and it's in policy where we need to ingrain these things. I actually love that because the people at the top have the power to say, we need to review this policy or we don't. Whereas people, I think where you get stuck at the middle is the people in the middle don't have they're probably not comfortable to challenge the policy, but if you have it accountability from the top and invite people to challenge the policy, then that's where I think people can implement. Yeah, no, and, and, and it's, it's, you know, and after you have a policy, then you have a process, right? Uh, very often we have organizations that just have policies and no process to go with it. Um, you know, you can have a broad policy on something, but with no real how to, like, how are we going to do that? You know, we believe in diversity and inclusion and, you know, it's like, okay, but what does that mean in practice mm. for your organization besides being a blanket statements, right? And, and then we're getting into, you know, optics versus our outcomes, right? Like, what are we, what are we looking, you know, what are we looking at here? And that's what you just, people need to align and, you know, with, you know, uh, like I said, you know, accountability and you know and including everyone in the conversation okay i love this i love that you framed it this way accountability from the top engagement at all levels that's the best practice that's the way that you need to do it so i am curious because this was a lot thank you for all of this uh tk this is really powerful information but for people who are just starting out so i would say i want to ask you for two people so one someone that's on a senior leadership team that has influence and power in their company what is the best place for them to just get started? Um, best place for them to get started and, you know, in, in terms of having a conversation around diversity and inclusion, um, 
you know, there's the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion, which is a which is a great resource if they just looking to familiarize yourself. Uh, there's a really good leader to, leaders competency tool that you know that they have available. It's a toolkit that they have available there. Uh, just kind of just start from an awareness standpoint. Um, you know, from a practical standpoint in the office, uh, I, I think a lot of it. We always talk about the the importance of needs assessments. Um, Sometimes it's important to do your own needs assessment in your organization. Look and say, okay, you know, what are some of the surveys we've we've done here in the office? You know, have we done surveys that are related to, you know, to, to gender or otherwise? Some of you know, start getting some statistics, right? What gets measured is what gets done. Yeah. Right. And you know, so start having that understanding so that when you're, you know, if you're someone who's in a senior leadership. You know, when you're wanting to talk to people about, you know, the current state of your organization and the current state of diversity and inclusion in your organization, you want to be knowledgeable about it. Though. So, you know, if you're an ally, I'd shift your role and become a scholar, you know, for a little bit to make sure you can learn, right? Okay, I love that. And what about someone in the middle of a company that's like, you know what, this sounds great. I'm not sure what's happening in my company. I want to work towards having a more inclusive culture here, but I'm not at the top. So how can they get started? Um, well, they can get started. I mean, the same way too. I mean, if they're looking for just some, you know, uh, personal education, you know, uh, like I said, the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion, um, the Human Rights Commission also has a lot of good introductory information and education for people. Um, but practically in, in their organization, um, I think they can start with saying, okay, well, what policies are there and what avenues currently exist you know, for suggestions or changes. Um, it can be a very difficult position, you know, of uh, middle-level managers, like, oh, how do I suggest to to leadership that, you know, we want, you know, or we should look at a policy for this, this, and this, um, because there's a fear there too that you may be looked at as a problem, as a problem maker, right? This person is causing waves. And that's another fear that people end up having when it comes to speaking up in organizations, like, am I going to be labeled uh, something? But I say, have confidence and ask the question. You won't, you won't know for sure until you ask the question and start it from, from that point. Okay, I love that. And so I always like to end my podcast with an action that people can take within 24 hours. And you just gave us a couple things, but I want to break it down to a baby step that someone working today can do to just get started in their company? Just one individual. What is the best thing they can do? Um, the best thing they can do is start by understanding themselves. Uh, look at some, look at some uh, things around, you know, gender identity and, and their own identity. Um, before we can truly understand others, it's also important that we understand ourselves as well um, and understanding a little bit more of our backgrounds and and what makes us a person. And then it puts us in a position where we can start to learn with others and about others. Okay, so is it kind of just like reflecting on how you grew up, like the privilege that you had, the privilege that you didn't have, the way you treat people, the way you treat yourself, the way you treat yourself, just taking some time to reflect on that. Is that what you mean? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, and, and, I, and I mean it purely from a, 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 from a human rights perspective, you know, take a look at human rights and say how and see how what we strive for ourselves as people. We want to be treated with respect. We want to be treated with dignity. We want to have freedom, right? You know, that's what we want for ourselves individually. And then start to use that lens. Use that particular lens, you know, to start looking at like, okay, is this the way I see it for other groups of people and other people around me as well? Okay, that's really powerful. So look at it from like a human rights perspective and then just look around, honestly, like you can look around your community, your workplace, 
whatever and see how that applies. Okay, I love that one. So thank you for that, TK. And no I am curious, if people wanna learn more about you or Shumba Consulting, how do they find you? Uh, on my LinkedIn page, uh, just uh, look me up on my LinkedIn. You can look up Tanaya Yumo on my LinkedIn page and um, my website is uh, uh, shumbaconsulting.ca uh, if you're interested, so, uh, but primarily my LinkedIn. Okay, awesome. So I will put a link to that in the show description so people can find you there. Um, thank awesome. you so much for this interview. I learned a lot. This is so fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, uh, like I certainly uh, appreciate it and you've taken the time to, to ask me and, and thank you as well for, for, you, for your work. And it's also, it's always very motivating and, and, and very encouraging as well uh, to see as you lead the efforts on another front as well. It's amazing. Thank you. Hi there. Before you go, I was wondering if I could ask you a huge favor. Can you click on iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and also a comment? This would mean the world to me. It also helps us to spread the word about the podcast and attract higher profile guests. We want to be able to deliver thought leadership around diversity and inclusion every single week and having more reviews on iTunes will help us to do that and help us to keep the show going for free for you. So please head to iTunes right now, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. Thanks so much. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about Ambitious Every Day. It is all of the exercises that I take my coaching clients through in the form of a journal to help you focus and take action towards your goals. And here's the great news. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you get 11 pages of the journal for free as a PDF right to your inbox. So head on over to ambitiontheory.ca and sign up.